If you are a guest with us this morning, then you may not know that we're in the middle of a series in which we were talking, we were talking about um, the kinds of questions that people ask, both from the world, but also from the church, and especially younger people within the church, asking the question about faith and who God is, and is any of this legitimate? Like, can we continue to believe? Are there good reasons to continue to believe? Are the challenges that the world brings to our doorstep in terms of who we are as a, a people and our faith system, are those challenges, uh, are we able to defend ourselves against them? Can we say to those who question us, no, there's a good reason for us to believe the things that we believe? And we would say that scripture actually calls us to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. So we're called to do this. We're called to, to give a ready answer. And personally, I find that the question we're kind of faced with today is one of those questions that, I, I, frankly, I've been wrestling with it as a Christian ever since I became a Christian. It's not an easy one at all. It's difficult. We're going to try and make some sense of it this morning. It has to do with the notion of punishment. The notion of punishment of sinners in the hands of God. A God who is loving and gracious and wonderful and all-powerful. And yet there are things about him punishing human beings that don't go down all that easily. And so the question would get framed something like this. How can God punish his children with such wrath and power when he is supposed to be a loving father? You know, the fact is, is that there's nobody in the room who would in any way advocate child abuse. Nobody here would say that we have the right to kill or to injure our children in the process of disciplining them. We wouldn't condone it. And so the world, I think, rightfully in one sense, certainly with merit, looks at us and says, how come it is that your God gets a free pass? Why is it that he gets to do what we don't get to do in terms of the ways in which we respond to disobedient children? Not a bad question. When scripture speaks of him punishing even his own children with great power or with an everlasting kind of punishment in the form of hell, doesn't that at least cause us to wonder? They certainly do. And I have to be honest, there are times when I've looked at the Bible and said to myself, what exactly is going on here? Now, this is a little bit different question than we asked 18 months ago. 18 months ago, in fact, I'm going to say it for the sake of the podcast, on August 24th, 2014, we discussed the fact that in the Old Testament, especially, God often seems to be punishing innocence, including women and children, and sometimes he wipes out entire cities. And although this challenge to God's wisdom and love certainly demands our attention, I don't think it's unanswerable. And I would just encourage you to get the podcast and to listen to that and see what was said on August 24th, 2014. 
in response to the question of how is it that God goes about killing innocent people? Or at least apparently innocent. It's a good question, too. This morning, though, I want to refine the question a little bit or or bring it down to a, a little bit of a different focus than that. It centers today on whether or not God's powerful judgment of sinners is appropriate. And it's, it's often pointed out that preachers these days don't preach about hell the way they used to. The preacher doesn't stand up and yell at people the way that he used to. And he doesn't tell everybody they're going to burn in everlasting punishment forever and ever and ever in agony, you sinners. We don't do that as much as we used to. Personally, I find that refreshing. I'm glad that I don't have to do that. I would hate to meet you on the street. And as you pass by, and then as you begin to go past me, I, you hear it in the rearview mirror, You ain't a sinner! You're going to hell! And that's kind of all I had to say to you all the time. That wouldn't be pleasant. And how are the flames doing anyway? And God in Scripture does this even with his own chosen people. The ones he says he loves. And the punishment that he meets out against them sometimes just seems, I mean, to, to even me, I read the Bible and I, I'm sometimes just repulsed by the kind of wrath and punishment that is there. And I try and reconcile that with the notion that God is love. But he seems so harsh. His people have sinned. Yes, but oh, the wrath. And then while this isn't present in the New Testament quite the way it is in the Old, it's present there too, we hear, of course, about many New Testament verses that discuss hell and eternal punishment. How should this side of God's personality be thought of? Are there ways of thinking about God's wrath that somehow legitimately justify this within him? Even though he says that he's love. Then he punishes with power. Even the punishment of death and eternal death because of our sins. What do we do with all of this? I want you to turn to Numbers 25. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 115. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then Numbers 25 comes after Numbers 24. Page 115 in the Pew Bibles. I want you to look at verse 4 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. Wow. He wants his anger turned away. How is he going to turn away the anger? Bring the leaders out and kill them publicly. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Imagine the scene. All these people are weeping and then they bring this woman there. 
When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. And there's no way around the fact that that's repulsive. That is not a pleasant Bible story. I don't know what they're doing in youth worship right now, but I'm, I'm hoping they're not teaching that one to the four-year-olds. And it's not because they don't need to hear about God, of course, but because this is very hard to take. Now turn to Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so this man is making an offering to the church. He sold some property, takes a good portion of the proceeds, and gives this to the Lord. Which, at least at this point, sounds okay. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you've received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. I guess... Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Because he lied to the Lord about a financial contribution. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And notice Peter doesn't, apparently doesn't say anything to her. Her husband has just died. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And before she even has a chance to grasp what's going on in terms of what happened with her husband, at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And again, I'm not surprised. In fact, I think it behooves me at this point to mention that we're in a bit of a budget crisis. (laughs) I think you're going to have to take this more seriously, folks. This man sold a piece of property and gave half of it to the Lord. He falls down dead. How are you doing? Well, the story is more than just interesting. It is challenging. We could read a lot more passages in Scripture that talk about God's punishment of those who haven't done what God wanted them to do. 
And it's a bit frightening. It's a bit disconcerting. This Numbers 25 passage and a host of others like it are certainly disconcerting. What do we do with this? Well, there's at least a couple of different questions, I think, that come to those outside, but I think even to some of us, us inside, when we ask the question about the judgment of God and of sinners. And I think there's one of these questions that maybe we don't really ask, and then another one we certainly do. First, the question I don't know that we ask so much, but it's right here still at the forefront of the issue, and that is the question of justice. Nobody seems to question whether or not some punishment for sinfulness is justified. The concept of justice we get. Like we understand fairness. We understand reaping what you sow. We often say things like, he got what he deserved. The punishment fit the crime. They shouldn't be allowed to get off scot-free. We feel that. When a guilty party gets off without punishment, we consider it inappropriate or unfair and feel like something is not right. So when seven young men walking along the sidewalk and are confronted by another young man decide that they're going to beat the tar out of him, and I remember when we were in Victoria, there was an incident where just this kind of thing happened and there were seven youths who grabbed a youth that was coming along the sidewalk and they took his arm and they broke it on the step or the, uh, the curb of the sidewalk. They called it a curbing. It became a, a word. This is what you do to people sometimes. You curb them. Can you imagine? Huh, doesn't that just fill you with a little bit of rage? Don't you think to yourself, they deserve punishment. Something needs to happen to these seven people who decided to do this to this other get fellow. When... When somebody takes and beats somebody else to a pulp to the point where they can't any longer think rationally, forever their brain is not functioning the way it was before because of some beating. Don't we think to ourselves, something has to be done here. These people belong in jail. We get that. If a woman is gang raped... We all, there's just a sense of righteousness about us when we say, this can't be allowed to go on. Something has to happen here. There must be justice for these people. You watch a movie, and at the end of the movie, somebody, who made the villain throughout the film, all of a sudden at the end, he gets it. Somebody finally gets him at the end of the show. And you know what the crowd does? They clap. They clap when the villain gets it at the end. Why do we do that? Because there is a sense in us of justice. We recognize that there is something right about this. And the fact is it even goes for us. If, if I do something wrong and somehow it gets back and gets me, there's a part of me that feels good about that. I think to myself, justice has been done. I deserved that, we sometimes say. And there's even a cleansing of the conscience that goes along with the idea that we are receiving our just desserts. 
And so we don't really have a problem with the idea of punishment and justice in and of themselves, as long as the punishment fits the crime. So if I asked you the question, should there be justice, we would all say, well, yes, there needs to be justice. But then it's difficult, unfortunately, to not turn to the Bible and start asking questions about the level of justice, about whether or not the punishment always fits the crime. And then the question becomes the second question that I want to deal with, and that is about the harshness of the punishment, especially when God harshly punishes those whom he says he loves. And so when there are 30,000 people who die in a plague because of some incident within Israel, maybe false worship or something, there's a part of me that says, is that necessary? Did we have to kill 30,000 in response to the sin? And I might even say, in looking at the Ananias and Sapphira story, really? They gave half the money? And then they both dropped dead? Like, is that how we want God to deal with us this morning if our finances aren't in order in terms of our responsibility to the Lord? That's a little bit frightening. And then, what about hell? What about the notion of eternal torment? Well, are there answers for these things? I think there are. I think we need to say something about God. And the notion not just of him judging, but the judgment with such powerful harshness. And I don't have all the answers this morning. I'm still thinking all of this through. You'll be able, after I'm finished here, to come up to me and say, well, here's my burning question about that, as two young men did after the first service today. You'll be able to do it too. And I may turn from you and walk away baffled. (laughs) With your question, I may shake my head and say, boy, I, you know, I hadn't counted on that question. That's a possibility. But at any rate, here are my thoughts this morning in terms of answering the question about this notion of judgment and the way that it so often appears in Scripture. And so here are five comments. The first one's this. That we are allowed by God to question him without being immediately destroyed is itself an act of grace giving us a clue into his true character when it comes to punishment. And at first, you might think, boy, that doesn't seem like a very significant point. I think it's huge. I am saying, when I question God, I am saying to the Almighty One, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all, the Lord of glory, the one who's in absolute control of everything, I am in some sense looking him in the eye and saying, God, what in the world are you thinking? What are you doing? I'm down here, and I seem to disagree with this. And God has not yet struck me with lightning. Why? Why? 
The only thing I can think of is because he loves me. The only thing I can think of is it's because of his, his grace. I question him, and it is, in fact, a, a kind of rebelliousness. If he is God, he can't possibly be wrong. If I think for a moment that he's wrong, then he's not God. In fact, there would be a standard above him that would have to be that which we refer to and which we would have to use to evaluate his behavior by, if I'm going to question him. At which point, he's no longer God. That standard becomes God above him and beyond him. He's not it. And so it seems to me as though there can't be this kind of question without at least some level of rebelliousness, and he does not strike me down in light of that. If he is at all harsh, which our questioning hints at, he should by all rights destroy me on the spot. And it goes not just for this question and this person, but it goes for billions of people who ask billions of questions about who he is and what he's doing. And he does not destroy us. And that says something to me about his character, his attitude toward us. He clearly gets the fact that I question. He clearly allows it. His love transcends it. His justice at every point seems to say to me, I'm going to permit this, even though I'm sovereign. And the fact is, because I know him, I wouldn't expect anything different. He treats me just exactly the way I would expect him to treat me. And that, I think, is an instructive fact and not one that should just be passed over. I think that's significant. God wants so badly to have relationship with the billions and the billions that he judges and harshly punishes a few that are guilty as an example for others. I think this is the case. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I just want you to see here what Scripture says about the reasons why these stories are told. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank, drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and, up, and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did 
and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You get the point. Why are these stories told? Well, I think that God wants to teach us something. And it's interesting, we're already, we've already seen the fact that the guilty are guilty, that there's something right about justice. There's something right when God punishes because there is such a thing as justice. That's understandable. So God is not guilty when he punishes somebody. And we've also seen that he's really the only one who has the right to establish right and wrong. We can't say to God, hey God, hey God, you know those ten commandments you gave to us? Maybe you should relax on, uh, on those a bit. They, are, they just aren't that big a deal. We can't say that to him because God and his character is the standard. His holiness is the rule. We can't say to him, you sure seem to be mean-spirited when you did this, God. Can't you control your anger? Lord, maybe you need to take a course. Those who are created need to recognize that it's his prerogative as God. The guilty are simply those who are guilty. They deserve justice. And as I said, we get this. But then beyond the fact that he's God and that there should be justice, this passage, I think, teaches that God's punishment of sin itself teaches. The harsh, dramatic way in which punishment takes place is an example. It's instructive. And it's instructive for billions and billions of people. You know, I, I was c- calculating this this morning uh, with somebody thinking about how many people are killed in the Old Testament by God? I don't know what it would be. Let's say it's a million. Okay? Let's say there's a million people killed in the Old Testament by God. The fact is, and this is is a little bit uncomfortable, but the fact is that a million killed in comparison with the billions and billions who are instructed by that action, I think in some way explains to us what God is doing. There is a teaching kind of experience that goes on there. And it might be hard for us to get, but I think that God has a purpose in the punishment of those who are guilty. And it's interesting that Ananias and Sapphira, it's the only time I can think of in the New Testament where there are people who are specifically killed by God because of their sin in the New Testament. And maybe, maybe there's another one that I'm not thinking of. And when I say people, by the way, I'm talking about Christians. I know there are others who are killed, like Herod. But I mean, in terms of those who are Christian, who are committed to Jesus, the only ones I know of who are specifically killed by God who are Christians are Ananias and Sapphira, Two. Just interesting. Is it his pattern? Seems not to be. But he seems to do it for some kind of instructive reason. In fact, I would say that God cares more about the impact of the punishment of a few of the guilty ones than he does on whether or not all the truly guilty and worthy of punishment are in every case receiving abundant grace. Like God is far more concerned that we all get grace 
and that the impact of the punishment of a few has its impact. And he is gracious and kind. He wants all to come to eternal life, and that's why he does what he does. So it seems as though the punishment that occurs actually has a kind of instructive purpose, which isn't easy to hear, but I think it's the case. Here's another point. People are ultimately punished in response to their free choice of rejecting his love. And I think that has a bearing on what it is that he does and how we think of it. Whether it is humankind's rejection of their creator or Israel's rejection of the one who chose them special or humankind's rejection of Jesus the Messiah, the rejection is still a rejection of God by people. And what I'm saying is that God doesn't choose to reject you. God doesn't say, man, I can't wait to punish those people. He, I want to do this. I want to punish them good. Not at all. His punishment is always a response to their rejection of him. And if you think about how does that feel? Well, some of you are parents... And either it's happened or it's going to happen that one of these days your child may look at you and say, I hate you. I hate you. I know you're my mom or my dad, but I still hate you. Because sometimes kids do that. And what will be your response? Are you going to say, "Ah, I'm going to kill you? No. Your heart will break. Because you know that whatever it is that you're bringing into your child's life at that point is there because you love them. You love them even despite their mistakes. People are given a free choice to reject the love the way our kids are given a choice to reject our love. I don't think that feels very good for God. And he ends up having to punish them because of that free choice on their parts. And I don't think that feels very good for him at all. The fourth kind of comment is the hell question. How can God punish with everlasting torment those whom he created in love and for whom he sacrificed his son. Everlasting torment. And the strength of the question is very easy to see. Because all I have to do is ask any of you who are in the room who are parents and just ask you, is this what you would do. Would you, given the behavior of your children, choose to throw them into a place of everlasting, everlasting torment and pain? 
And I don't think there's one of you in the room who would say yes. I wouldn't do it. The reason I wouldn't do it, you ask me, why, why would you not put your own children into everlasting torment if they did this, this, and this? Because I love them. So how is it that this God who says that he loves us so much, how is it that he does that? And I regard that probably as the most challenging question in the Christian era. Because no matter what my children did or others did to me, no matter what my children did to other people, I wouldn't punish them with eternal torment. And I just don't see how he can. So I regard that as a very good question, one that I find difficult to answer. So let me tell you my thoughts. Here's what I do with it. First, if hell, which I believe in, is a condition of eternal torment, it's because the sacrifice of Jesus was so significant a sacrifice that the rejection of it by human beings demands a fitting justice. In other words, to reject the love of Christ would be more than just the unpardonable sin. It would be such a great rejection of such great eternal love that it would be answered only by a judgment that was as great and as horrible as his love is wonderful. Maybe that does it. I don't know if you know this, the notion of hell is not in the Old Testament. There's no hell, there's no Hades. There is no notion of eternal hell in the Old Testament. You die, you go to Sheol. It's an underworld kind of place. But it is not eternal torment. The notion of eternal torment comes only in the New Testament. Why? Is it possible it's because that it's only after the sacrifice of Jesus and the love that he displays that a punishment must be meted out that fits somehow and answers the great love of God in Christ Jesus. I think that's possible. Here's another option. It may be, and some of you will, as soon as I say this, you'll think, that's not biblical. But I encourage you to study it. It may be that hell is not actually eternal torment. It's possible that hell is eternal punishment, but not necessarily torment. And we don't have time for all of that this morning. Let me encourage you to get a book. And I'll say this for the sake of the podcast. There's an author, and his name sounds funny, but it's very, very real. His name is Edward Fudge. Fudge is a Church of Christ preacher, has been for all his life. Now retired. And he argues that eternal punishment in hell is simply eternal death after an initial temporary 
punishment. If you're familiar with things like this, it's typically known as an annihilationist argument. simply means that after death, there is a second death, which is really death. And that death is death. And it ends it. And that when you have the second death, you don't have the second life of torment. You have a second death, which is death. And that that constitutes the punishment. It's a real, final death with no chance for eternal life with God. And so there is hell, but it's not an active life of torment. It's the annihilation of the life. And what hell is then is the absence of relationship with God. Now, Fudge makes the argument in his book, it's 350 pages long or so in one version, very carefully argued, and he's had... I mean, all, all kinds of accolades for this book. He argues that position. And what it does for me is that it takes out of my mind the notion that somewhere there is God living eternally alongside people who are also living eternally in torment. And one of the things I wrestle with, and I'm just being honest with you this morning, one of the things I wrestle, wrestle with is what's going to be happening with me when I'm in heaven? Like if I'm in heaven trying to enjoy my wonderful life with God, but those whom I love are in everlasting agony while I'm there, I wrestle with how significant heaven's going to be. It's just a question. The book is entitled, The Fire That Consumes, by Edward Fudge. If you missed that, you can listen to the podcast, The Fire That Consumes, by Edward Fudge. It's a good book. The last thing I'll say. When I was on my trip, I I had... several times during the course of the trip when I was, um, when the thought kept coming to me, God is so good to me. And I thought about that because of my granddaughter who's doing so well and my grandson was there and we were having a blast with him and I was thinking about my family and just how good God is. He's just so good. but I don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve any of it. He is so good to me, and I don't deserve it. And the reason why I'm able to even live and stand here is because of this. God's ultimate character is love, and I believe his wrath flows from his love. And it doesn't work the other way around. God is not primarily the just God, and because of that, he's love. God is love, and because of that, his justice flows out of his love. And we have to get these straight, or we don't get them right. And it gives me great hope. There was a point on our our trip when my son Adam, his son Easton, who's my grandson, had a little car or something running around on the hardwood floor. 
And my other son, Ryan, who just had the little girl, he's got a big dog, Moose. And so Easton's running around on the floor with this car, and he kind of bumps up against Moose, and Moose didn't like it, and he got him a good one on the arm. Turned around and let him have it. Didn't break the skin, but ooh. And of course, Easton was immediately scared to death and ran away and all of that. So everybody was upset by the incident. You know, we had a rough hour there or so. The next day, Easton at some point is kind of playing around Moose again. And all of a sudden, Adam, his dad, says, Easton, get away from Moose. I told you to not be around that dog. You get over here. And Adam was instantly angry. Why was Adam angry? Well, did he think that his son was going to be excessively disobedient? Is that the problem? Of course not. He was angry because his son was at risk. And he loved him. And he cared. And it comes out in anger, but really it's motivated by love. And I don't think that's a weakness of character. It's just a reality. I don't know. Maybe I'm not saying something that I should be saying about God if I say that his anger is somehow motivated by love, but I think it is. And his wrath, I think, is motivated somehow by his love. His love for humankind, and he wants the very best for them, and he always will. Well, we haven't answered all the questions. It's not easy. I'm trying to work through it just like you are. But I pray we can keep studying and learn and grow and figure out exactly who God is and why he does all the things he does. I hope our answers somehow suffice for a world who needs him very badly. Let's pray. Lord, there are things about you that I don't understand. Your ways are beyond me. Your ways are not my ways. I praise you for that. I pray, God, you'd help us to understand better. And Father, I pray that our attempt in this series to look at deep questions in challenging ways and to face them head on, I I pray that somehow that's a blessing to us. And Father, I especially pray that if someone is confronted by your wrath, your punishment, and they don't know what to do with that, that they will continue to trust you anyway because they've seen you over and again act with such love and graciousness and relationship with your children because your love. Help us to stay grounded there. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.